Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arrowit. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. Kiloe and Konos Islands. December 10th. The yawl and whaleboat, with Mr. Sullivan, proceeded on their survey, but I remained on board the Beagle, which the next day left San Pedro for the southward. On the 13th, we ran into an opening in the southern part of Giatecas, or the Konos Archipelago, and it was fortunate we did so, for on the following day a storm, worthy of Tierra del Fuego, raged with great fury. White massive clouds were piled up against a dark blue sky, and across them black ragged sheets of vapor were rapidly driven. The successive mountain ranges appeared like dim shadows, and the setting sun cast on the woodland a yellow gleam, much like that produced by the flame of spirits of wine. The water was white with the flying spray, and the wind lulled and roared again through the rigging. It was an ominous, sublime scene. During a few minutes there was a bright rainbow, and it was curious to observe the effect of the spray, which, being carried along the surface of the water, changed the ordinary semicircle into a circle, a band of prismatic colors being continued from both feet of the common arch across the bay, close to the vessel's side, thus forming a distorted but very nearly entire ring. We stayed here three days. The weather continued bad, but this did not much signify for the surface of the land in all these islands is all but impassable. The coast is so very rugged that to attempt to walk in that direction requires continued scrambling up and down over the sharp rocks of mica slate, and as for the woods, our faces, hands, and shin-bones all bore witness to the maltreatment we received, in merely attempting to penetrate their forbidden recesses. December 18th. We stood out to sea. On the 20th we bade farewell to the south, and with fair wind turned the ship's head northward. From Cape Tres Montes we sailed pleasantly along the lofty weather-beaten coast, which is remarkable for the bold outline of its hills, and the thick covering of forest even on the almost precipitous flanks. The next day a harbour was discovered, which, on this dangerous coast, might be of great service to a distressed vessel. It can easily be recognized by a hill sixteen hundred feet high, which is even more perfectly conical than the famous sugar loaf at Rio de Janeiro. The next day, after anchoring, I succeeded in reaching the summit of this hill. It was a laborious undertaking, for the sides were so steep that in some parts it was necessary to use the trees as ladders. There were also several extensive breaks of the fuchsia, covered with its beautiful drooping flowers, but very difficult to crawl through. In these wild countries it gives much delight to gain the summit of any mountain. There is an indefinite expectation of seeing something very strange, which, however often it may be balked, never failed with me to recur on each successive attempt. Every one must know the feeling of triumph and pride which a grand view from a height communicates to the mind. In these little frequented countries there is also joined to it some vanity that you perhaps are the first man who ever stood on this pinnacle or admired this view. A strong desire is always felt to ascertain whether any human being has previously visited an unfrequented spot. A bit of wood with a nail in it is picked up and studied as if it were covered with hieroglyphics. 
Possessed with this feeling, I was much interested by finding, on a wild part of the coast, a bed made of grass beneath a ledge of rock. Close by it there had been a fire, and the man had used an axe. The fire, bed, and situation showed the dexterity of an Indian, but he could scarcely have been an Indian, for the race is in this part extinct, owing to the Catholic desire of making at one blow Christians and slaves. I had at the time some misgivings that the solitary man who had made his bed on this wild spot must have been some poor shipwrecked sailor, who, in trying to travel up the coast, had here laid himself down for his dreary night. December 28th. The weather continued very bad, but it at last permitted us to proceed with the survey. The time hung heavy on our hands, as it always did when we were delayed from day to day by successive gales of wind. In the evening another harbour was discovered, where we anchored. Directly afterwards a man was seen waving a shirt, and a boat was sent which brought back two seamen. A party of six had run away from an American whaling vessel, and had landed a little to the southward in a boat, which was shortly afterwards knocked to pieces by the surf. They had now been wandering up and down the coast for fifteen months, without knowing which way to go, or where they were. What a singular piece of good fortune it was that this harbour was now discovered. Had it not been for this one chance, they might have wandered till they had grown old men, and at last have perished on this wild coast. Their sufferings had been very great, and one of their party had lost his life by falling from the cliffs. They were sometimes obliged to separate in search of food, and this explained the bed of the solitary man. Considering what they had undergone, I think they had kept a very good reckoning of time, but they had lost only four days. December 30th. We anchored in a snug little cove at the foot of some high hills, near the northern extremity of Tres Montes. After breakfast the next morning, a party ascended one of these mountains, which was 2,400 feet high. The scenery was remarkable. The chief part of the range was composed of grand, solid, abrupt masses of granite, which appeared as if they had been coeval with the beginning of the world. The granite was capped with mica slate, and this, in the lapse of ages, had been worn into strange finger-shaped points. These two formations, thus differing in their outlines, agree in being almost destitute of vegetation. This barrenness had to our eyes a strange appearance, from having been so long accustomed to the sight of an almost universal forest of dark green trees. I took much delight in examining the structure of these mountains. The complicated and lofty ranges bore a noble aspect of durability, equally profitless, however, to man and to all other animals. Granite to the geologist is classic ground, from its widespread limits and its beautiful and compact texture, few rocks have been more anciently recognized. Granite has given rise, perhaps, to more discussion considering its origin than any other formation. We generally see it constituting the fundamental rock, and, however formed, we know it as the deepest layer in the crust of this globe to which man has penetrated. The limit of man's knowledge in any subject possesses a high interest, which is perhaps increased by its close neighborhood to the realms of imagination. January 1st, 1835 the new year is ushered in with ceremonies proper to it in these regions. She lays out no false hopes. A heavy northwestern gale, with steady rain, bespeaks the rising year. Thank God we are not destined here to see the end of it, but hope then to be in the Pacific Ocean, where a blue sky tells one there is a heaven, a something beyond the clouds above our heads. The northwest winds prevailing for the next four days, we only managed to cross a great bay, and then anchored another secure harbor. I accompanied the captain in a boat to the head of the deep creek. On the way, the number of seals which we saw was quite astonishing, 
every bit of flat rock and parts of the beach were covered with them. They appeared to be of a loving disposition, and lay huddled together fast asleep like so many pigs, but even pigs would have been ashamed of their dirt and the foul smell which came from them. Each herd was watched by the patient but inauspicious eyes of the turkey buzzard. This disgusting bird, with its bald scarlet head, formed to wallow in putridity, is very common on the west coast, and their attendance on the seals shows on what they rely for their food. We found the water, probably only that of the surface, nearly fresh. This was caught with a number of torrents which, in the form of cascades, came tumbling over the broad granite mountains into the sea. The fresh water attracts the fish, and these bring many terns, gulls, and two kinds of cormorant. We saw also a pair of the beautiful black-necked swans, and several small sea otters, the fur of which is held in such high estimation. In returning, we were again amused by the impetuous manner in which the heap of seals, old and young, tumbled into the water as the boat passed. They did not remain long under water, but rising, followed us with outstretched necks, expressing great wonder and curiosity. 7th. Having run up the coast, we anchored near the northern end of the Konos archipelago, in Lowe's Harbor, where we remained a week. The islands were here, as in Kiloi, composed of a stratified, soft, littoral deposit, and the vegetation, in consequence, was beautifully luxuriant. The woods came down to the sea beach, just in the manner of an evergreen shrubbery over a gravel walk. We also enjoyed from the anchorage a splendid view of four great snowy cones of the Cordillera, including El Famoso Corcovado. The range itself had in this latitude so little height that few parts of it appeared above the tops of the neighboring islets. We found here a party of five men from Caelan, El Fin del Cristianidad, who had, most adventurously, crossed in their miserable boat canoe for the purpose of fishing the open space of sea which separates Conos from Kiloe. These islands will, in all probability, in a short time, become peopled, like those adjoining the coast of Kiloe. The wild potato grows in these islands in great abundance, on the sandy, shelly soil near the sea beach. The tallest plant was four feet in height. The tubers were generally small, but I found one of an oval shape two inches in diameter. They resembled in every aspect, and had the same smell as English potatoes, but when boiled they shrunk much, and were watery and insipid, without any bitter taste. They are undoubtedly here indigenous. They grow as far south, according to Mr. Lowe, as latitude fifty degrees, and are called Aquians by the wild Indians of that part. The Kilotan Indians have a different name for them. Professor Henslow, who has examined the dried specimens which I brought home, says that they are the same with those described by Mr. Sabine from Valparaiso, but that they form a variety which, by some botanist, have been considered as specifically distinct. Note. Horticultural Transact, Volume 5, page 249. Mr. Caldaloo sent home two tubers, which, being well manured, even the first season produced numerous potatoes and an abundance of leaves. See Humboldt's interesting discussion on this plant, which it appears was unknown in Mexico, in Political Essay on New Spain, Book 4, Chapter 9. It is remarkable that the same plant should be found on the sterile mountains of central Chile, where a drop of rain does not fall for more than six months, and within the damp forest of these southern islands. In the central parts of the Conos archipelago, latitude 45 degrees, the forest has very much the same character with that along the whole west coast for 600 miles southward to Cape Horn. The arborescent grass of Chiloe is not found here, while the beach of Tierra del Fuego grows to a good size, and forms a considerable proportion of the wood, not, however, in the same exclusive manner as it does farther southward. 
cryptogamic plants here find a most congenital climate. In the Strait of Magellan, as I have before remarked, the country appears too cold and wet to allow of their arriving at perfection, but in these islands, within the forest, the number of species and great abundance of mosses, lichens, and small ferns is quite extraordinary. Note. By sweeping with my insect net, I procured from these situations a considerable number of minute insects of the family of Staphylinidae, and others allied to Cephalus, and minute Hymenoptera. For the most characteristic family in number, both of individuals and species, throughout the more open parts of Kiloe and Konos, is that of Telephoridae. In Tierra del Fuego, trees grow only on the hillsides, every level piece of land being invariably covered by a thick bed of peat. But in Kiloe, flat land supports the most luxuriant forests. Here, within the Konos archipelago, the nature of the climate more closely approaches that of Tierra del Fuego than that of northern Kiloe, for every patch of level ground is covered by two species of plant, Astelia pumula and Donatia magellanica, which by their joint decay compose a thick bed of elastic peat. In Tierra del Fuego, above the region of woodland, the former of these eminently sociable plants is the chief agent in the production of peat. Fresh leaves are always succeeding one to the other round the central taproot, the lower ones soon decay, and in tracing a route downward in the peat, the leaves, yet holding their place, can be observed passing through every stage of decomposition, till the whole becomes blended in one confused mass. The Astalia is assisted by a few other plants. Here and there a small creeping Myrtus, M. numillaria, with a woody stem like our cranberry and with a sweet berry, an Impetrum, E. rubrum, like our heath, a rush, Juncus grandiflorus, are nearly the only ones that grow on the swampy surface. These plants, though possessing a very close general resemblance to the English species of the same genera, are different. In the more level parts of the country, the surface of the peat is broken up into little pools of water, which stand at different heights and appear as if artificially excavated. Small streams of water, flowing underground, complete the disorganization of the vegetable matter and consolidate the whole. The climate of the southern part of America appears particularly favorable to the production of peat. In the Falkland Islands, almost every kind of plant even the coarse grass which covers the whole surface of the land, becomes converted into this substance. Scarcely any situation checks its growth. Some of the beds are as much as twelve feet thick, and the lower part becomes so solid when dry that it will hardly burn. Although every plant lends its aid, yet in most parts the Astelia is the most efficient. It is rather a singular circumstance, as being so very different from what occurs in Europe, that I nowhere saw moss forming by its decay any portion of the peat in South America. With respect to the northern limit, at which the climate allows of that peculiar kind of slow decomposition which is necessary for its production, I believe that in Kiloi, latitude 41 to 42 degrees, although there is much swampy ground, no well-characterized peat occurs, but in the Conus Islands, three degrees farther southward, we have seen that it is abundant. On the eastern coast in La Plata, latitude 35 degrees, I was told by a Spanish resident who had visited Ireland that he had often sought for this substance but had never been able to find any. He showed me, as the nearest approach to it which he had discovered, a black peaty soil, so penetrated with roots as to allow of an extremely slow and imperfect combustion. The zoology of these broken islets of the Conos archipelago is, as might have been expected, very poor. Of quadrupeds two aquatic kinds are common. The Myopotamus coipus, like a beaver but with a round tail, is well known from its fine fur, which is an object of trade throughout the tributaries of La Plata. It here, however, exclusively frequents salt water, 
which same circumstance has been mentioned as sometimes occurring with the great rodent, the capybara. A small sea otter is very numerous. This animal does not feed exclusively on fish, but like the seals, draws a large supply from the small red crab, which swims in shoals near the surface of the water. Mr. Bino saw one in Tierra del Fuego eating a cuttlefish, and at Lowe's Harbor another was killed in the act of carrying to its hull a large volute shell. At one place I caught in a trap a singular little mouse, M. brachiatus. It appeared common on several of the islets, but the Kilotans at Lowe's Harbor said that it was not found in all. What a succession of chances, or what changes of level must have brought into play, thus to spread these small animals throughout this broken archipelago. Note. It is said that some rapacious birds bring their prey alive to their nests. If so, in the course of centuries, every now and then, one might escape from the young birds. Some such agency is necessary to account for the distribution of the smaller gnawing animals on islands not very near each other. In all parts of Kiloi and Konos, two very strange birds occur, which are allied to and replace the Turco and Tapacolo of central Chile. One is called by the inhabitants Chucao, Teropticos rubecula. It frequents the most gloomy and retired spots within the damp forests. Sometimes, although its cry may be heard close at hand, let a person watch ever so attentively, he will not see the chucal. At other times, let him stand motionless, and the red-breasted little bird will approach within a few feet in the most familiar manner. It then busily hops about the entangled mass of rotting cones and branches, with its little tail cocked upwards. The chucal is held in superstitious fear by the kilotens, on account of its strange and varied cries. There are three very distinct cries. One is called chiduco, and is an omen of good, another, Puitro, which is extremely unfavorable, and a third which I have forgotten. These words are given in imitation of the noises, and the natives are in some things absolutely governed by them. The Chilotans assuredly have chosen a most comical little creature for their prophet. An allied species, but rather larger, is called by the natives Gidgid, Teropticus tarnii, and by the English the barking bird. This latter name is well given, for I defy any one at first to feel certain that a small dog is not yelping somewhere in the forest. Just as with the chucao, a person will sometimes hear the bark close by, but in vain many endeavor by watching, and with still less chance by beating the bushes to see the bird. Yet at other times the gidgid fearlessly comes near. Its manner of feeding and its general habits are very similar to those of the chucao. On the coast, a small dusky-colored bird, Opetiorhynchus patagonicus, is very common. Note. I may mention, as a proof of how great a difference there is between the seasons of the wooded and the open parts of this coast, that on September 20th, in latitude 34 degrees, these birds had young ones in the nest, while among the Konos Islands, three months later in the summer, they were only laying, the difference in latitude between these two places being about 700 miles. It is remarkable from its quiet habits. It lives entirely on the sea beach, like a sandpiper. Beside these birds, only few others inhabit this broken land. In my rough notes I describe the strange noises which, although frequently heard within these gloomy forests, yet scarcely disturb the general silence. The yelping of the gidgid and the sudden wee-wee of the chucao sometimes come from far off, and sometimes from close at hand. The little black wren of Tierra del Fuego occasionally adds its cry. The creeper, Auxiores, follows the intruder, screaming and twittering. The hummingbird may be seen every now and then darting from side to side, and emitting like an insect its shrill chirp. Lastly, from the top of some lofty tree, 
the indistinct but plaintive note of the white-tuft tyrant flycatcher, Myobius, may be noticed. From the great preponderance in most countries of certain common genera of birds, such as the finches, one feels at first surprised at meeting with the peculiar forms above enumerated as the commonest birds in any district. In central Chile, two of them, namely the Oxyurus and Scytalopus, occur, although most rarely. When finding, as in this case, animals which seem to play so insignificant a part in the great scheme of nature, one is apt to wonder why they were created. But it should always be recollected that in some other country, perhaps, they are essential members of society, or at some former period may have been so. If America south of 37 degrees were sunk beneath the waters of the ocean, these two birds might continue to exist in central Chile for a long period, but it is very improbable that their numbers would increase. We should then see a case which must inevitably have happened with very many animals. These southern seas are frequented by several species of petrels. The largest kind, Procolaria gigantea, or Nelly, Quebranta huesos, or brick bones of the Spaniards, is a common bird both in the inland channels and in the open sea. In its habits and manner of flight, there is a very close resemblance with the albatross, and as with the albatross, a person may watch it for hours together without seeing on what it feeds. The Breek Bones is, however, a rapacious bird, for it was observed by some of the officers at Port St. Antonio chasing a diver, which tried to escape by diving and flying, but was continually struck down, and at last killed by a blow on its head. At Port St. Julian these great petrels were seen killing and devouring young gulls. A second species, Puffinus cinereus, which is common to Europe, Cape Horn, and the coast of Peru, is of much smaller size than the P. gigantea, but, like it, of a dirty black color. It generally frequents the island sounds in very large flocks. I do not think I ever saw so many birds of any other sort together as I once saw of these behind the island of Kiloe. Hundreds of thousands flew in an irregular line for several hours in one direction. When part of the flock settled in the water, the surface was blackened, and a noise proceeded from them as of human beings talking in the distance. There are several other species of petrels, but I will only mention one other kind, the Pelicanoides berardi, which offers an example of those extraordinary cases of a bird evidently belonging to one well-marked family, yet both in its habits and structure allied to a very distinct tribe. This bird never leaves the quiet island sounds. When disturbed, it dives to a distance, and on coming to the surface, with the same movement it takes flight. After flying by a rapid movement of its short wings for a space in a straight line, it drops as a struck dead and dives again. The form of its beak and nostrils, length of foot, and even the coloring of its plumage, show that this bird is a petrel. On the other hand, its short wings and consequent little power of flight, its form of body and shape of tail, the absence of a hind toe to its foot, its habit of diving, and its choice of situation, make it at first doubtful whether its relationship is not equally chose with the ox. It would undoubtedly be mistaken for an ox, when seen from a distance, either on the wing or when diving and quietly swimming about the retired channels of Tierra del Fuego. End of chapter 13 Part 2